By now, the concept of a one-year risk horizon for reserve risk should be familiar to actuaries in the South African market. There is an expanding toolbox of quantitative tools with which actuaries can employ one-year reserve risk as a useful risk metric. This talk by Tim and Maria uh, will recap the concept of a one-year risk, a reserve risk, and review some of the techniques which have been developed so far. Several practical applications of one-year reserve risk metrics will then be discussed, including using this metric to assess the reasonability of an actual versus expected analysis, and using successive, successive one-year risk metrics to estimate the capital requirements for the runoff of claims provisions, and thus the associated market value margin. Welcome. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Andrew. Okay, so as Andrew mentioned, what we'll be looking at today is a one-year reserve risk. Um, just a sort of overview of the um, agenda for today. We're going to introduce the topic. I'm going to sort of scope a couple of things in and out so we can really focus on the, the key points. We're going to jump into reserve risk as a concept. Um, I think everyone will probably be familiar with an ultimate view of reserve risk, but we will do a brief um, recap of the, of the concept. I'm then going to introduce the idea of a, a one-year reserve risk and how does that differ from an ultimate, an ultimate view. Um, I'm then going to hand over to Maria. Maria is going to go through some of the technical um, the side of how, how do we actually assess a one-year reserve risk as opposed to an ultimate view. And we're going to do a couple of practical examples. Um, so without sort of selling the presentation uh, forward, the practical examples for me are, are sort of the key uh, point of the presentation. The methods we're talking about today have been around for a few years. It's not uh, original research that we've done or anything like that. It's almost more like a literature review that we're, we're sort of pulling uh, a bunch of stuff together. But um, as a topic which I've been interested in for quite a while, I feel like it's had a relatively low impact so far. I think it's something that people might be aware of on the sort of edge of knowledge. We all know that somehow the standard model is doing a one-year reserve risk. Um, it was mentioned in one of the earlier presentations that there's a log, normal, log, normal, log normality assumption going on in there and a, a coefficient of variation. But maybe, maybe it's not 100% clear where that's coming from. Um, so, so like I said, I think even if the, the technical details don't appeal to you, um, I would suggest that you maybe switch back on when we get to the practical examples, because I think we've got two that are quite uh, sort of eminently usable, things that we think people can go away and start doing um, in fact, as of their next reserve review. Okay, so we'll kick off with an ultimate view. Um, like I said, we're, we're sort of focusing today on one-year reserve risk, but just some other stuff to make it clear that what we are and are not considering. Everything we talk about today is for a single portfolio or a single triangle. I mean, there was some, also some discussion earlier in the, the talk on the standard model about aggregations and all that sort of thing. We're definitely not considering anything like that in our talk. Um, the focus is on, on approaches which basically assume that the basic chain ladder is true. Um, so you'll notice point there says uh, we're not focusing on BF-based methods. I will come back to that. And if essentially what that boils down to is the research uh, on those sorts of methods is still up in the air. Um, and we'll, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail later in the presentation. And then I also mentioned that we're not the focus of the talk today is not to sort of point out limitations that we all know about when it comes to assessing ultimate risk, um, for the most part. 
So I'll come back to that. So this is sort of a lay of the land from my point of view of um, the methods which are out there. I think majority of people who do reserving should be familiar with these two papers. Um, the MAC method gave us a way of assessing a sort of a non-parametric standard error for our ultimate claims. Um, it's distribution free in inverted commas. And the 2002 paper by England and Burrell put forward the bootstrapping method, which is also quite commonly used to assess variability reserves. So the reason I'm sort of bringing these up is we'll see as we look at the one-year view of risk that um, essentially development is carried on in these two streams. The MAC method is sort of an analytical approach and there's been development on taking that approach and, and um, putting it into a one-year context. And similarly, the um, England and Burrell approach is a sort of simulation, bootstrapping type approach. And there's also been work to extend that uh, kind of approach. And what we see is that um, actually they can give uh, consistent results uh, given the same assumptions. So they, um, from that point of view, it's sort of up to you which one you want to look, um, use. So just to sort of uh, touch on the concept, we're not gonna spend too much time on it. Ultimate losses, what do, we, what do we mean when we say ultimate losses or an ultimate view of risk? We're looking at the whole future unknown sort of runoff of the claims. And these risk metrics which we come up with, be they standard errors or uh, empirical distributions or whatever the case might be, we're actually looking at the ultimate loss, which is a surrounding variable of interest. Um, we can quantify all sorts of various risk measures or whatever the, or whatever the case might be. So I said we're not really gonna spend too much time talking about the, the shortcomings of the, the ultimate risk models. This is the only thing we're gonna talk about. I think uh, it's an interesting study we came across while we were doing our preparation for this talk. Uh, I've got the reference there for those of you who want to go and read it. Um, in fact, I would suggest you go and at least have a look at it, read the conclusions, look at the graphs. Essentially, what these three actuaries um, did is they took, I think, about 30 or 40 years of um, actual uh, insurance return data from American companies and went back and refitted the ODP bootstrap model, so the sort of the commonly used one, at each point in time and found the empirical distributions for those reserves. And then what they did is they tracked them through to extinction based on the actual um, development. So if the model was uh, a good fit, we'd expect to see these bar graphs relatively flat, which would mean that about 10% of the actual development results fell within each 10% bucket of the empirical distribution. But I'm sure it's obvious to everyone, given these sort of smile shapes, that the models are quite badly underestimating tail risk. So in, in this paper, the authors then propose some approaches to deal with that and so on and so forth. Um, like I said, it's not the purpose of today's talk to really point these out, but it's worth bearing in mind that, yes, although we're going to look at all these fancy one-year um, measures and um, approaches for assessing this, um, this one-year reserve risk, that there is still some uncertainty around the, the ultimate view model. So even though we're taking this model and now adjusting it to get something even more complicated out of it, we should bear in mind when we're using the results that um, we need to actually do our own backtesting and validation on our own data to check that the, the model assumptions are actually uh, reasonable. Okay, so now this is sort of the point of today's talk, so we'll kick off. Uh, One-year reserve risk, where does it come from? My personal opinion is that it's basically been um, a regulatory drive which has gotten us to this point. So the UK ICA was arguably a bit ahead of its time um, when what they suggested was that companies should determine their capital based on a runoff of reserves, a year of new business, and they should assess this sort of result at a one in 200 year return period. Solvency 2 took that kind of, uh, those kind of principles, but introduced a, a twist 
in that they said, actually, we should only assess this movement from balance sheet to balance sheet. So instead of looking at the whole lifetime of the reserves to extinction, we just need to look at the movement of the balance sheet from year to year. So I think perhaps there wasn't 100% appreciation for the complexity that introduced at the time because it was actually an unstudied problem and created a bit of a headache for short-term insurance actuaries who didn't have a way to actually measure this risk. So if we contrast this with the, the earlier diagram we had, instead of now considering the entire uh, future unknown losses, we're only looking at one year of unknown losses. But crucially, also the reserve we set at the end of that year. So I've got two, two different formulas up there which are actually equivalent, and I think some people might find the first uh, more intuitive or the second. Personally, for me, it's the second equation, which says that this concept that we're looking at, this sort of number we want to uh, uh, put, a, put a number on, this, uh, which we term the claim development result, sort of the, uh, almost the accounting loss that we're going to make or profit that we're going to make from the reserve runoff over the year. So like I said, for me, the second one is more the actuarial view. And we can de determine the claim development result by looking at the change in our ultimate claim estimates over the year. So given an extra year of claim information, how have our estimates of the ultimate claims changed? But uh, the other approach or the way to look at it is almost more of an accounting definition. It's sort of what, what would drive the result in the accounts, which is your opening reserve, less the claims paid in the year, uh, less the closing reserve. So this is, this is the sort of uh, really important concept to pick up from, from this point. This is actually the variable that we're trying to quantify or, or measure when we look at a one-year risk. So there's some little formulas. I'm not going to go through them now. If anyone's not 100% sure how those two are equivalent, uh, when the slide pack gets released online, you can do the algebra there. So basically, CDR, now we've sort of introduced this topic, CDR. I'm going to refer to it as a CDR from here on uh, just to save me from having to say the whole, the whole name every time. But as a random variable, it actually behaves quite differently to the incremental loss in the next year. And that's due to the fact that it in inherently contains all of the variability of the incremental losses in the runoff, but also all the variability of the end of year reserves, which are dependent on the claims which emerge in the year. So there's a dependence implicitly between these two items. Uh, interestingly enough, why this has not sort of been obvious to us before is on an ultimate view, CDR and losses actually have the same variability because there's no closing reserve. So, so that's the sort of key difference here. The key complication is that when looking over a year, or in fact any period up to the extinction of the reserve, um, there's the extra variability of the closing reserve which we need to consider. So I pose the question there, how do we assess this thing? Um, I'm going to hand over to Maria in a second, but basically to sort of tie this back to the, the earlier slide, to me they fall, the approaches fall into sort of two broad categories, one of which is analytical, and like I said, they're very much extensions of the MAC method, which we all know and love, and the other are simulation-based methods, which are, again, extensions to models which we already, um, we already know. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Maria, Maria to go through um, these approaches in a little bit more detail. Right, um, good afternoon everyone. So I will try my best to keep you guys awake as we go through the more technical side of things. Um, so as Tim mentioned, there are essentially two sort of main broad brush approaches towards quantifying the one-year reserve risk. So the one is then, um, as you mentioned, on the analytical side, with the other one being a bit more of a simulation-based approach. So the first one that I want to take you guys through this afternoon is on the analytical side of things, um, specifically the method um, as derived by Mautzenberg. So 
Mass and Bertrich have derived an analytical approach to calculating this mean squared error of prediction for the one-year claims development result. Um, Michael Matz and Mario Bertrich are both professors in Europe. Um, uh, the one's got a PhD in mathematics and the other one um, in risk theory. So as part of this model, there are a few sort of key assumptions to keep in mind as we do go, do go through this process. Um, the first one is that um, the model assumes that the underlying MAC model assumptions hold, so that of the distribution-free chain ladder. Secondly, the model assumes that both the opening and the closing reserves are set using the basic chain ladder approach um, in its vanilla form. And finally, another assumption that's made is that it assumes that there's no tail factor, so no runoff um, beyond what you can see in your triangle at the moment. Right, now given that this is a closed form analytical solution, um, the math behind it uh, is indeed quite fearsome. Um, so you'll see that sort of very unhelpful snippet there on my right. Um, However, it's important to note that, um, as Tim also mentioned, that there is some very, very valuable insights that can be derived from going through this process. So one of the key ones that I can mention is, for example, taking this mean squared error of prediction and using that to calculate a coefficient of variation. So taking that mean squared error, dividing that by your opening reserve, and you'll end up with a parameter that's, that's quite analogous to the reserve risk parameter you'll find in your standard model. Secondly, it also allows us to ask some very, very practical questions um, prospectively, so it allow us to gain a bit of an additional insight in terms of how our reserve and how our risk can actually move over the coming year. And it also allows us to ask those same questions retrospectively, which Tim will touch on a little bit more when you get to the practical examples, in gaining a bit of a better understanding as to how our claims experience that has emerged over the coming year, how that actually relates to our expectations and how we can base our management decisions off of that information. Now, as with any other actuarial model, it's important to keep in mind that this is by no means a silver bullet, um, and the approach does have its limitations. Um, so a lot of those limitations are essentially driven by the assumptions that underlie this model. So you'll see, as I've mentioned there, that what if you do indeed have a tail factor in the triangle that you're looking at? Um, or, for example, if the distributional assumptions, or rather the process distributions, um, assumptions of the MAC model don't necessarily um, hold true. And another key point to keep in mind here is that you essentially end up with a point estimate of the risk, um, which in some sort of scenarios and context can be quite limiting and does limit your sort of ability to provide additional insights based on that. Now, since the original paper in 2008, some of these shortcomings have been addressed. So in 2014, Mattson Wittrich also derived a complete runoff of the mean squared error of prediction over the lifetime of the reserve, so moving away from the one-step sort of approach towards a complete view of the reserve runoff over time. In 2015, they also derived a formula that makes an allowance for the tail factor. However, it's important to keep in mind that the mathematics underpinning these extensions are indeed even more challenging than the original method and does to quite an extent bring up the a bit of a question around the, the implementation arena of, of spreadsheets when you're starting to look at these slightly more complex extensions. In terms of moving over to other actuarial risk measures, so we do still have the standard actuarial toolkit at our disposal, and so we are usually quite comfortable to make sort of distributional assumptions, which we can then parameterize using the mean squared error of prediction that we can obtain from this method. So for example, quite a common assumption there would be to either take a normal or a log normal view, rather, um, and then you can sort of move and get your quantiles um, from that. However, in order to gain a little bit more of a comprehensive view of what that actual underlying reserve distribution looks like, a simulation approach is um, much more suitable. So as I've mentioned, the Mass and Wittrich is to that extent somewhat inflexible in the additional insights that it does provide, and you sort of get a very limited view of the underlying distribution. Now, a simulation approach is one that's quite intuitive to us as actuaries, um, and one that we've become quite familiar with over the few years. Um, 
It's often referred to, the re-reserving algorithm that I'm going to take you through now is often referred to as the actuator-in-a-box methodology, as was coined by Esben Olsen from Stockholm. And it allows us to gain a much more comprehensive view of what the distribution of choice actually looks like. So what I'm going to do is I just want to give you guys a very sort of quick overview of the principles underlying this algorithm, and you'll see what I mean by its sort of intuitive nature. So essentially what we'll do is we'll start off with our reserve triangle at time t, and take a simulated-based approach to simulate all future incremental claim payments based on that triangle. So that would be, at this point in time, still quite similar to, for example, a bootstrap-based approach. We will then take an incremental view of those simulated claim payments, and this is the key area then where we will take the reserve triangle at time t, and based on an incremental view, we will augment that triangle with essentially one diagonal that has emerged based on our simulations. So, as soon as we have that augmented triangle, what we'll then do is we'll re-estimate our reserves, and this is also then where the actuary in a box analogy is drawn. We will then specify a specific reserving algorithm. Traditionally, this can be as simple as the standard basic chain ladder model, recalculate our reserves, and essentially ending up with an actuary in a box re-estimating those reserves for each one of our simulations. Now, there are a few considerations to keep in mind when we do go through this um, re-reserving exercise. So, to the extent that the basic chain ladder model is used as your reserving algorithm of choice, it's quite an easy extension to existing bootstrap models, as those essentially make the same assumption. At the moment, there is still some controversy around using what we've essentially labeled here other algorithms. So, for example, something like the Bornheader ferguson method. Um, the point to be made here is that we are essentially generating losses as if the basic chain ladder model is our true underlying model um, of the claims process. And by bolting on something like the Bornheader-Ferguson method, we run the very real risk of firstly either biasing our claims development result or secondly artificially, um, artificially lowering the variance that we'll obtain at the end of the day. Now going through the simulated-based approach does yield some additional insights, and I'd like to just take you through a handful of those um, before handing back over to, to Tim. So, the first one that you can see here is a comparison of the claims development result over a one-year horizon um, as it compares to um, the overall ultimate view of the reserves. Um, what we've done here is uh, compared that for a specific underlying model, so taking the MAC model and comparing the one-year um, cumulative dis distribution function um, against that of the ultimate view. Now, given that we've got all of these simulations underlying this approach, we have a, quite a rich data set that we can draw from, and so we also have, for example, the potential to compare our one-year runoffs over, um, or well, rather between different models. So what you can see on this one here, um, similarly looking at the CDF function, but now comparing our runoff um, with the MAC model on the one hand and the over-dispersed model as our underlying um, approach on the other side. And you can also see this quite characteristic sort of fatter tails that we can see in the over-dispersed Poisson. What you can then also do is we can decompose our claims development results into its underlying components. Um, so what I've done behind me here is essentially taking that claims development result of ours and breaking that down into the incremental loss, as well as the associated change in reserve um, that Timothy has touched on. So you can see sort of the narrower spread around the incremental loss, the, cumulative, um, the claims development result falling in the middle of that um, as compared to the change in reserve. The last one that I want to take you guys through is the ability to do some very detailed dependency analyses based on the simulation information that you have available to you. Um, so what we've done here is we've taken two approaches and compared sort of the dependency structure between the two of those. So what you can see on the left-hand side is on the x-axis you can see the simulated incremental losses plotted against the change in reserves. So the change in reserve here is a complete refitting of the basic chain ladder algorithm. So essentially taking the data as it has emerged and completely refitting everything based on that. 
And what you can also see there is the sort of expected quite strong correlation between the move in the incremental losses compared to the change in reserve. You do see a few outliers which does make the process quite interesting, but that correlation as a whole does tell quite a telling story. And what we've done there on the right-hand side to compare is taking a bit more of an actual versus expected adjustment to the reserve. So again, sitting with the incremental losses on our x-axis, what we've done here is taken an adjustment-based actual versus expected approach that we've seen quite commonly in the industry. So one way, for example, you would look at how your um, claims experience has emerged over the year and using your existing basic channel data models develop those and adjust your reserve estimate. Now, interesting what you can see there is that that sort of correlation and expected dependency structure does break down to quite a large extent between the two. And so you gain a significant amount of additional insight by going through this process. You have this data available um, after applying the re-reserving exercise, and ultimately it allows you to make significantly more informed management decisions when it comes to making ad hoc actual as expected adjustments to your reserves. So on that note, I'd like to hand back over to Tim. We'll take us through the current state of play. Okay, so um, basically before we jump into the practical examples, I just want to sort of summarize uh, what we've spoken about so far. Essentially there are these two approaches, uh, analytical approach which is very much analogous to a MAC method, a re-reserving approach which is very much in line with the bootstrapping um, approach and in fact is a, is a small change away from uh, the most existing bootstrapping models. But sort of the elephant in the room up to this point has been that, fine, all these methods exist if we're doing our reserving using a basic chain adder, but who only uses a basic chain adder? Um, and based on the, the sort of uh, review we've done, we are pretty confident in saying that these methods don't really exist for quite a lot of other common models, notably the BF, but also all sorts of other models. Um, I think something like a hybrid model where um, the actuary chooses a BF or a chain ladder by origin period is also quite a common approach. Um, so theoretically, at the moment, there's no way to do that. However, in the same way that we take practical approaches to do this on an ultimate basis, um, shifting and scaling sorts of approaches are probably what most of us will resort to in the meanwhile. Okay. In terms of the BF uh, type methods, I really don't want to spend too much time on this. We did manage to find some papers which um, deal with this topic. Um, as I say, the models are not trivial and they rely on some pretty heavy lifting in terms of uh, numerical methods to actually estimate the parameters. Um, there's a whole bunch of um, names of these sort of processes there, and I think these are not well known um, to actuaries in general, and I certainly I don't know what any of them are. And they put us off trying to present any of the results for this talk, although we might attempt it for, for a later talk if we have a bit more time. Um, and basically the long and short of it is there are already models which exist to give us sort of uh, an ultimate view posterior distribution, but nobody's managed to do the maths that actually get us to the one year uh, view yet. But who knows, maybe by next year's stick, um, somebody will have done so. Okay, so we're gonna jump into the first practical example. Uh, the first one we're gonna look at is on back testing of reserves. So if you go and look through the literature on this topic, um, I feel like the, the guys doing the maths think that this is maybe a trivial example and it's usually mentioned sort of in a footnote and they tend to spend a lot more time in the papers doing multi-period stochastic re-reserving for internal models and all that sort of thing but I think that's a fairly low impact um, sort of thing. I don't think there's that many people who are going to be doing internal models uh, anytime soon. So this one to me, maybe, it's, um, maybe it does seem um, obvious to them or trivial but I think it's something which um, 
given some of the other things we've heard discussed today around the fact that actuaries are going to have to be setting based estimate reserves, um, control functions are going to be looking for based estimate reserves, and so are auditors. So if we're going to be showing um, reserves that are, you know, on that basis, we'd expect to have positive and negative claim development results in equal measure. Uh, you know, if you just think about you setting uh, a best estimate, it should be wrong half the time or too low half the time. So it creates this little bit of uh, an issue for us. Now we're going to be doing reserving exercises and getting claim development results out where we haven't had the opportunity to put in any kind of smoothing or margins for prudence to give ourselves any chance to uh, make, it, make the runoff look a little more favorable. We're, we're going to end up with some situations perhaps where we get uh, unfavorable developments or, or developments which are negative and how are we actually going to sort of defend those or make those defendable. So we're going to go through a little example. We've done sort of a, a basic little uh, valuation exercise. This is based on, on real data. So we haven't gone and um, jimmied up a triangle here. This is based on a real triangle. And essentially this is the sort of information which we think is commonly um, produced for evaluation. We've got um, U naught is our ultimates at time naught. R naught would be our reserve at time naught. So here we just use a chain ladder to do all of this. There is a triangle in the background which we're not going to show. Um, we've got our max standard error, so that's again something which I think people are commonly using. But of course this could be any kind of ultimate risk measure. It could be a 75th percentile, a 90th percentile, whatever, whatever um, what have you. Um, at time naught we can also come up with our best estimate of the claims we expect to pay in the next year. So here I've called that the expected value of X1, so X1 being the incremental payments in the next year. And we also then can find our expected reserve at the end of the year. So on an expectation basis in advance, um, the reserve that we expect at the end of the year is exactly the opening reserve minus the payments. Um, you know, if we were expecting any other change in the reserve at the end of the year, we would have just added it to the reserve at the start of the year. So in this case, we can also see our, our MAC coefficient of variation for the whole portfolio is about 12.3%. So it's high-ish, but not super high. Um, we jump forward now. Now let's say we're at the current valuation. We've actually now had an opportunity to observe X1. So this is now what's actually emerged in the year. We've given that information. We've gone away and redone our reserving exercise. We've got a new set of ultimate claims estimates and consequently a new reserve. Again, all just on a chain ladder basis here. And what we've done is we've taken the, the difference in the payment expectation and the difference in the reserve expectation and those two contribute to our claim development result. So this is another way to decompose the claim development result over the year into sort of a couple of movements. One, so the difference in the expected payments is almost like our AVE result for the year, and the difference in the reserve is sort of the change in the reserves given the new information that we've uh, observed in the year. So we end up getting a claim development result there of minus about what, 1.6 million. So minus in this case meaning a reserving loss. So this is going to impact uh, the income statement. Um, remember at time naught our, our reserve was about let's say 18.6 and our sort of ultimate view risk measure was 2.3. So we try to, without any further sort of tools or, or quantitative uh, measures to assess this, to put that 1.6 million rand loss into perspective, um, it does, it looks kind of serious. I mean it's, it's sort of 31% deviation from the expected amount we, uh, on top of what we expected to pay. And if we think about our, our ultimate risk measure, okay, fine, in this case it's a, it's a uh, standard error, so maybe it's a little difficult to interpret, but we've kind of stressed 70% of our, our risk margin on an eight-year runoff um, in one year. So it makes this result look kind of, kind of um, difficult to defend. And if you're now in a situation where 
you've got actuarial control on your back or the auditors on your back asking you, were your reserves actually deficient at the start of the year or is this just random variation? You'd actually have to have quite a long conversation um, to get to the bottom of that. So I'm going to jump ahead to the next slide here. Um, oh, sorry, got some little animations to take us through there. Basically, all I've done here is I've divided everything by a thousand to get it all onto one slide. And the only in new information here is the rightmost column, which is highlighted in green. So this is now the standard deviation of the claim development result. And I'm, gonna, I'm sure everyone's already jumped to the bottom and seen that it's actually a little larger than the claim development result over the year. So what we're suggesting here is that this toolbox actually does allow you to come up with something from an actual control point of view. You might have some sort of validation heuristic which you can set in advance when the reserves are set and say to the actual control function, we're going to assess the runoff of your reserves on some basis. Like I said, we've chosen a standard error here, but you could choose a percentile or, or um, a cost of capital margin or, or what have you. Um, in this case, I mean, let's say that our, our heuristic set in advance was a standard error. Well, our results fallen within one standard error, so maybe it doesn't actually look that bad. Certainly it allows you as the actuarial function to have a conversation with actuarial control based on some kind of numbers as opposed to just um, sort of a, a back and forth. Okay, so the second example we're going to look at is, is, uh, is risk margins. So this also sort of pulls together some themes from the, some of the other presentations we've had today. Um, we're not just thinking in a SAM context here. As uh, the previous presenters pointed out, IFRS 4 Phase 2 will also require some kind of risk adjustment or risk margin. Um, again, I think given the content of some of the other presentations today, we probably don't need to spend too much uh, time on this slide, but um, I'm going to jump ahead to sort of the fourth point and tell you that there are actually ways to assess the risk measures for future periods directly, either using analytical approaches or using re-reserving approaches. And why I think that's important is because um, I think a common practice at the moment, certainly it's something I know I do, is if I'm doing uh, SAM calculations, I get my ACR at time naught, I've got the runoff of my reserves, but when I come to do my risk margin calculations, um, the technical specs require me to sort of estimate my future capital requirements. And if I've used the standard model, I actually don't have a model for the future capital requirements. I can plug in my future reserve estimates or my future reserve volumes into the formula, but that um, standard deviation that's in there is actually not calibrated on that basis. So the standard deviation that's in the standard model, for example, is only based on going from time naught to time one. It doesn't take you from time one to time two or any other point in the, in the, in the runoff. However, because we don't have these models or, um, you know, it's not sort of maybe that widely used, I think what people tend to do is they'll take the risk measure at time naught and scale it using the best estimate of the reserves over the lifetime of the runoff. So what we're saying is actually we don't need to do that. We could find these risk measures directly um, as opposed to scaling them and running off the risk margin in line with the best estimate. So this is the triangle we considered for, for this example. Um, it's, we did have to sort of go and look around for one that gave us a, an extreme result, but it is real data. So it's a 12-year runoff. It's got some significant variability in the tail which I've highlighted. And basically what we're saying is um, everyone up to this point has been able to get best estimates of the runoff. So either on a cash flow basis or reserve basis, everyone's already probably doing that. But what we can also get is the standard error of these claim development results um, over the lifetime of the reserve. And effectively what happens is if we compare for this case study, like I said, we did go and find one which gave us quite a, 
quite an extreme difference. What the graph is showing us is the runoff of the risk metric um, over the lifetime of the reserve. So if we run it off uh, pro rata to the best estimate, we can see it runs off with the, the solid gray line, runs off quite quickly. If we run it off with the standard error, which we've estimated analytically here, uh, that's the dotted red line, it actually runs off a lot more slowly. So what that tells us is the coefficient of variation actually doesn't run down as quickly as the best estimate. So the coefficient of variation from sort of in later years actually gets higher. So we can probably make up some stories for ourselves about why that might be the case. Uh, maybe there are fewer claims left in the, in the reserve, fewer numerical claims. I mean, um, maybe the claims that tend to be settled longer are the ones that inherently are going to be more uncertain. Um, so there's a whole sort of discussion which we can have around what's actually driving that. But like I said, this is based purely on, on the calibration from that triangle. Um, at the bottom, I've included a table there which shows the runoff of the reserve at the top there. Um, and the second line shows the runoff of the risk measures which we've estimated directly here. So here we've used an analytical approach. It's a paper by these two guys, Mertz and Boothrick from 2014. So it's pretty recent stuff. Um, even if you'd been up to date with the one-year reserve risk stuff up to sort of uh, three years ago, this is not a paper that you would necessarily have seen. And then the last one there, I've actually uh, run off the same risk, risk metric at time naught, but I've scaled it down in line with the best estimate over the runoff. So the last sort of point I want to look at is um, the totals at the end there. So if we're thinking now about doing a risk margin in a SAM context, these are our future, let's say in this case we're using a standard deviation as a, as a risk metric. Of course, uh, on a SAM basis, we'd be using the 99.5 percentile from a log normal distribution, which we could also parameterize using these standard errors. So I think the difference there is going to be a, a factor difference. But effectively, in this case, the sort of present value without any discounting by uh, estimating these things directly is almost double what it is by running it off in line with the best estimate. So obviously, um, making some kind of discounting assumptions is going to mute that difference to some extent, but um, it's still quite a considerable difference. It's something that we think uh, it's easy enough to do um, if you've got the software. Um, not all portfolios will give results that are this different. Like I said, we have tried to pick on one um, specifically here. Um, but I think this is another nice practical example of where we can actually use this stuff um, as opposed to it sort of being all a bit um, up in the air. Okay, so I think we're going to open for questions. If we have any. Any questions? Thanks for the presentation, Klaus. Um, just uh, one thing that's sort of maybe I was thinking of when I heard the presentation. Um, and not having probably read as many of the, the backing papers as well. Um, but uh, well, one thing I, I, I find myself thinking about is even in applying the chain letter method, you probably, um, any reserving actually will uh, apply an element of judgment in, say, selecting the, the claim development factors. But uh, and but now there is obviously quite a reliance on just you know pure application of the chain letter method, um, and and I find that you know yeah, when you do a, well I'm thinking that if you do apply the chain letter method, uh, you know 
does this, do your methodologies um, allow for, you know, um, some sort of judgment in, in sort of um, the calculation of the, of the claim development factors? Um, and I'm also wondering why, you know, with the BF method, you know, why that, 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 that shouldn't be possible. Um, you know, the question comes to, like, if I think of the BF method, if, if when you're reserving your prior loss ratio, you, just, you typically keep, keep the, the same prior loss ratio in subsequent periods. So just wondering, you know, I just felt that the BF method could uh, be a possibility sort of to apply with um, on this approach as well. Maybe there's a bit more sort of judgment involved in the BF method, but then again, I'm thinking that, you know, even a chain ladder method, there should hopefully be a possibility for, for judgment to be um, uh, applied in the assumptions. If you, if you don't, there could be, you know, if you think of actual situations, there might be a lot of volatility in the triangle, which is just because of situations in the past which you don't necessarily expect in the future that could get you a lot more volatility out of your claim development factors and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's just one example of why you want, might want to sort of apply a little bit of judgment. Okay. <clears throat> so basically, um, the methods do allow for some judgment to the extent that you can express your chosen development factors um, using sort of weights based on the actual link ratios in the triangle then you would still be able to get all of the, well, you'd still be able to get the standard errors and things like that out. I think, um, and I stand under correction, I think if you make an assumption that is very far away from what the triangle is telling you, and it can't be expressed using a, a sort of weighted average of what's actually in the triangle, then I think the formulas for the analytical approach will break down. I think on the sort of re-reserving approach, I must be honest with you, when I first started looking at using the re-reserving model, um, I thought, well, this is sort of the answer to all our prayers because regardless of the fact that you're using a chain ladder type model to estimate these sort of, few, or uh, simulate these uh, losses, you can specify any series of steps for the model to set the reserve at the end of the year. Um, it's only based on a bit of further research and again, I sort of have to um, admit I don't understand all of the, the statistical concerns, but when it comes to the BF, I think one of the areas where people are concerned is that by giving the model a sort of fixed prior uh, ultimate, one of, well, two things will happen, as Maria mentioned. The first is that if you're assuming that your underlying model is still a chain ladder and that's what you're using to generate your losses, what you see is that your claim development result is biased because you'll always end up with the ultimate from the chain ladder it is what actually gets simulated. It never really takes into account your prior ultimate. So. That's the one aspect. The other aspect is because you've given a fixed um, prior ultimate, there's no assumption of variability around that prior ultimate. And that's come under a bit of fire from some of the more sort of statistically minded people involved in this kind of research. And what they've suggested is these Bayesian type models where um, the actuary can specify a prior loss, but also needs to specify some kind of uncertainty around that loss. So either um, a three-point estimate or some kind of distributional assumption or whatever um, in order to make sure that the variability of the two methods still is still done on sort of a fair basis. I think the argument there is that even though we might think we have a good idea of what the ultimate loss is likely to be, it's not a fact. Um, so we still need to attach some kind of uncertainty to that prior ultimate. So like I said, those methods do exist. 
um, to do ultimate um, claim distribution assessment. They just nobody's managed to do one that will actually really sort of value the reserve in, in one year's time and, and give us this claim development result. Um, sort of as a sorry, before we go to the next question, I did actually include a reading list for those of you who are brave enough or bored enough to have a look. Hi, Tim. Uh, I think you've done a great job at summarizing a very complex uh, topic. Um, a quick question. So I, I think your last case study looked at a case where um, large claims tend to dominate the sort of um, last few development uh, periods. Have you looked into um, reserving methods that focus on individual, last, uh, individual large losses at all? Um, literature review? I have, but I don't know if it was recently enough for me to be comfortable to answer a question about it right now. Okay. Well, far away, let's see. Okay. Now, I was just curious to know if there's been any further research in that area. I think the last time I looked at it, there was a Murphy-McLennan method, um, but I don't know how much uh, that's taken off. Um, I, I'm sorry, I can't really speak to that. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Doesn't look like anyone else. Um, right. I think we're going to break for a bit. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Maria. Uh, yes, 